0: We've been talking about the natural state of open awareness, Now, different experiences arise as appearances and are simply known by the mind, and they're known in the very moment of their arising. The mind is never late. It's there just as the arising happens, just as the appearance happens. We can see this in the appearance of the breath, the appearance of sensations, thoughts, of emotions, of images. It's a display of appearance being known. What happens, though, from time to time is that we get lost in these appearances. We become identified with them, or we become reactive to them. And in those moments of getting lost, or getting reactive, or identified, we forget that they are simply empty phenomena arising and passing away. And it's interesting to observe carefully what happens in those moments when we get lost, when we forget. There's a contraction. There's a contraction into the appearance. And in that contraction, we create the prison of self, of I. Until, at some point, we awaken from that unawareness, and again we rest in the open, natural state of mind. The open, natural lucidity. And then again it happens. Certain appearance arises, we get lost again, contract again, imprison ourselves again. In the beginning of our practice, we might find ourselves lost most of the time. know, in just occasional glimpses of the open, clear space, the open, natural awareness. But slowly, these glimpses begin to link up until this awareness is stabilized in our experience. Tonight I'd like to talk of some number of states. I'm not sure how many I'll actually get through. Some kinds of appearance which have tremendous seductive power. Over and over again, we get pulled into these states. They seduce us into forgetfulness into unawareness. Two things can help us remain free, remain open. One of them is naming these states, so we can see and recognize them clearly, so we're not lost in a cloud of delusion about them. The second thing that helps us remain free is understanding very specifically, and very exactly, just how these different states are functioning. Because the more clarity we have about them, the more clearly we can see how they're working, the less liable we are to getting pulled into them, to getting lost in them. First of the mental appearances... one that is an old friend, is sloth and topper. The Pali word, words for sloth and topper, are tina mida. And sometimes, particularly with these kinds of states, I like to use the Pali because it allows us to consider the quality of this mental appearance without some of the heavy conditioning and connotation that we often overlay with an English word. You can see it more objectively. What is this feeling, this mental appearance of tinamida or sloth and torpor? We feel it in different ways. We feel it as sleepiness. We feel it as drowsiness. We feel it as dullness of mind. The mind state of Tinnamita is very contracted and very sluggish. The fiery quality of energy, you know, that alive quality of energy is absent. When sloth and topo when tinamita are present, there's this sinking down without any fire in us. One of the examples, a very uh, clear example of the quality of mind, you know, of Thinamita. It's, it's likened to uh, cold butter, you know, that's very hard, very congealed, and very hard to spread. It's, that's what the mind is like when Mita is present. It's also something more than simply drowsiness or dullness. It has a, uh, in some way, a more insidious quality or characteristic, too. And that is, when sloth and torpor is present, we become very lazy. We become inactive. Sort of the, the prime cultural... Uh, Image, I think, of sloth and torpor is couch potato. (laughs) You know, it's the perfect representation of this state of mind. Just kind of zonked out in front of a TV. When this is present, when there's no energy, When we're caught up in this feeling of laziness or inactivity, there's no power to do anything. There's no power to accomplish anything, whether in our practice or in our lives. There's a particular characteristic of this mental appearance which is very helpful to understand, and that is. As sloth and torpor appears in this display of appearances and we get lost in it, we get caught in it, identified with it, the characteristic of it is that it doesn't draw on the power that we actually have. We all have the energy. We all have the power. It's not that that's lacking in us. When sloth and torpor is present, We don't connect with our own power, we don't connect with our own energy. And once it appears and we get lost, we become identified with it, sloth and torpor has a a tenacious grip on the mind, as I'm sure you've experienced at different times. Once it takes hold. It's very hard to come out of it. I've mentioned before in other courses, it's, it's uh, such a perfect example you know, of the three-toed sloth. And I do not know which came first, the name of the sloth or the name of the mind state. But the sloth holds on so tightly, when it's holding on to a branch, it holds on so tightly that you can shoot a gun by its head and it won't move. You know, it's so slothful. <laughs> it doesn't budge. This is the quality. This is the holding on quality of this mind state. Getting lost in this appearance. Getting lost in this mental appearance over and over again has tremendous consequences, both in our meditation practice and in our lives. It's not an insignificant happening. Because when we are caught by this state, in this state of contraction, of low energy, of dullness, of drowsiness, of inactivity, the result of that is that whenever difficulties arise, difficulties in our practice, difficulties in our lives, whenever these difficulties arise and Tina Mita is present, we withdraw from them. We don't have the energy to meet them. Tina Mita never goes forward, it always retreats, it pulls back. And it's this quality of mind which conditions over and over again our giving up. We give up easily when this factor is strong. Well, this is important to say because in our daily lives we face many difficulties, and certainly in the course of practice, you know, as you well know, it's not just smooth sailing. There's lots of things that come up that are difficult to be with, difficult to deal with. We need to understand how to have the energy and the interest and the willingness to actually meet these difficulties, to go toward them, rather than retreat from them. So what makes us retreat, what makes us give up, is this quality. Of Tina in the mind. So we want to see that. We want to see how it's working. It's also very, very tricky, as are many mental states, because it can masquerade as compassion, especially compassion for ourselves. <laughs> I better not work too hard. You know, I'll probably strain too much. Let's relax a little bit. I think I'll go take a nap. The voice is alluring and it sounds compassionate. Yeah, I need to take care of myself. And we do need to take care of ourselves. This voice of Tina Mita is different than the voice of wisdom which brings us into balance when we're straining too much, when we're struggling, when we're efforting too much, then relaxing is is exactly appropriate. But I think we all know when we look openly and carefully and honestly, we know when we need to relax as a way of balancing or when we're being lazy. And it's very helpful to really discriminate between those two clearly. So that when it's laziness, when it's Tina-Mita, which is saying, oh, take a nap, it'll be okay, we recognize it. We don't get seduced by that voice. It becomes quite fun to learn how to recognize all the different manifestations of Tina Mita, just to watch through the day, all the different ways it arises. The mind that gets angry at the wake up bell, that's Tina Mita. <coughs> that's this feeling of, my, I don't want to get up. Tina Mita loves the snooze alarm, the snooze button. <laughs> Oh, let me just go back to sleep for another ten minutes. Another way it manifests, which I had some very direct experience with, Tina Mita doesn't like energetic people. It doesn't when it sees energetic people around it really grumbles. <laughs> and I saw this very noticeably a few years ago. We were sitting with Upandita in Australia. Um, and I was there, and I was living right across the hall from uh, Stephen Smith, and he's a real warrior practitioner. You know? he did, Tina meter is not his problem. So it would be 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, and I'd be, thought, that, you know, it's a good day's practice. <laughs> 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 and I'd be getting ready to go to bed, and I'd see him just Sitting and walking and sitting and walking the lights on all hours of the night. And my mind just started first getting very angry at him. You know, what does he think he's doing? (laughs) And then very self-judgmental about myself. You know, how can I be having these thoughts? You know, he's being this good (laughs) yogi. It was very helpful as soon as I saw that this... uh, These feelings in the mind and all these judgments and comparing and, you know, aversion that was coming out of it, all was just the working of Tina Mita not liking Virya energy. That's the characteristic. That's how, that's how Slavantopa works. When it sees energy, it doesn't like it. It's like, so when I saw this, when I saw there was just the functioning of this mind state, things got a lot more spacious. You know, I could see the humor of it. And I could also then take inspiration from the energy, rather than be judging it, or judging myself. So this is just a little example of how when we don't understand precisely how these different appearances, mental appearances, are functioning in our minds, we get caught in the drama of it. It's by not understanding how they function, that it seduces us you know and and we get caught we get entangled in it and the more we understand it the more we say oh yes that's that's this mind state working in this way there's distance there's space there's ease there's ex- there's acceptance there's a disentangling that happens <coughs> Mita or sloth and torpor, is strong when we've gotten entangled and lost. There's not much joy in our practice, because it's a very congealed state. You know? And so there's that sense of heaviness. And when this factor, this mental appearance, is strong in our lives not only in the meditation practice, but operate strongly in our lives, there's not much joy in our life. Because we're not meeting things. We're not open to things. We're always contracting, pulling away. So what to do? And this, is, this is a strongly conditioned force, habit. What to do? How can we work with it in a way that's helpful? the simplest and most profound way of relating to the sloth and torpor, to the tinamita, is noticing it quickly as an arising appearance in the mind. So we see it, we feel it, we experience it, but we don't get lost in it. We don't get identified with it. So just an image to you. It's an image that came to mind as I was thinking about this. I've never actually tested this image. So anybody from LA will probably be able to test it easily. The thought came, staying aware of the appearance of sloth and torpor in the mind, staying aware of it as an appearance. It's like smog being reflected in a mirror. And I don't know whether actually a mirror would reflect <laughs> or reflect the smog or not. But the image is, even as smog is reflected in the mirror, can we remain in the clear lucid awareness of the smog, of the sloth and topper. Even as that state is there, the awareness of it can remain very clear. Do you see the difference? It's very different whether we get caught in it, identified with it, lost in it, or we remain in the awareness of the appearance. Because the awareness is clear. The awareness is simply the knowing. This is the simplest and the most freeing way of relating to this mind state. And in this regard, a very precise and accurate noting might help. So that as soon as, soon as we see the arising of it, you know, we're just going along, going along, and the very first tendrils of sloth and topper appear right in that moment. Can we note it? Can we see it? Can we stay in the awareness of it? It's like taking refuge in awareness. There are other times when the sloth and torpor, it just overpowers us. We don't have enough stability of awareness, of mindfulness, to stay clear, to stay lucid. And it's like the sloth and torpor spreads out you know and begins to cover the entire mind then we need we need to work with some different strategies it might be encouraging to you to realize that this is not a new problem this state has always been with people and yogis. And there's a very nice sutta in the text, in the Pali texts, of the Buddha speaking to his chief disciple, Mogalana, before Mogalana was enlightened. Of course, he got, he got instructions, and then he practiced for a week, and a week later, he was fully enlightened. But in that week, he had some problems. <laughs> <laughs> And as he was practicing, the Buddha was able to see with his with his, uh, power of mind, his psychic power, he was able to see into the mind of Mogalana, who was practicing in the forest. He saw that um, Moggallana was being attacked by sloth and torpor, and he said, Oh, Mog- Moggallana, are you drowsy? Moggallana replied, Oh, yes, sir, I'm nodding. The Buddha said, Well, listen carefully, and I'll teach you ways of dealing with this sloth and torpor. Teach you ways of overcoming it. I just want to mention a few of the ways that the Buddha mentioned to Mogalana. This is coming right from the mouth of the Buddha. <laughs> the first suggestion he had for overcoming this mind state, overcoming or getting lost in it, was to change our attitude about it. So this is very important. It's not surrendering to those kinds of thoughts. Oh, I'm so sleepy. I better take a rest. Let me lie down. Let me back off. It's like that litany of thoughts, recognizing them and changing our attitude about the very state itself so that we don't simply surrender to those thoughts. Those thoughts are the voice Of Tina Mida. If we believe them, if we give power to those thoughts, it's like, you know, in the Greek mythology, the sirens. You know, how the beauty of the voice has just attracted the sailors. We need to change our attitude about those voices and about the state itself. I had a very uh, strong example of this in my own practice early on, in my early years in India. I was doing some retreats with Goenkaji, who was one of my Vipassana teachers. And in his retreats, the, the wake-up bell was uh, around four and there was a two-hour sitting before breakfast. And I was a fairly new yogi at that time. I'd get up very quickly because I wanted to get into the hall to get some wall space, which of course was at a premium, (laughs) especially at four in the morning. And I usually did. I usually, you know, got up and came into the hall, sat down, began practicing. You know, five minutes later, I'd be leaning against the wall. Ten minutes after that, I'd be gone, you know, (laughs) really asleep. And this happened day after day after day. And so these voices, this voice of kinamita started arising in the mind. This is stupid. Why am I getting up every morning just to sleep for this hour and a half? It didn't make sense. Why don't I just sleep till breakfast, then I'll get up and I'll be energetic and my practice will be good. And that voice was very loud and very commonsensical. But I didn't listen to it. I just kept on getting up anyway, even though I was falling asleep all the time. And it was amazing, because one day I went in there and I didn't fall asleep. And from that time, the Tinamita at those, those early hours was not a problem. If I had listened to the voices, I never would have gotten, or it would have taken longer to get to that point. So even when we think nothing much is happening, even when we're just sitting and nodding off or sleeping a lot. The very determination, the very resolution, let me just be here, let me sit here, let me continue the walking, whatever it is, that itself is arousing energy. That's the way of changing our attitude about these voices, about this mental state itself. We don't have to give into it. There's another change of attitude that happens on a more subtle level of practice. This is probably especially true for many of you who are well-experienced in meditation and practice, and it's not so much a question of drowsiness or sleepiness, it's a question of the mindfulness being pretty good, the awareness being pretty strong, happening quite effortlessly and we go on cruise control. And it's just like that. It's like you push the button, kind of sit back, and it's all happening. It's all going on. But there's not the quality of precise, alive alertness. You know, we may be slipping in and out of awareness and unawareness, still with a forward momentum. You know, it's still going, but that cruise control quality is another aspect of Mita, And so we need to see that, if that's happening. If we're kind of going along, but not with the lucidity and sharpness and clarity of moment-to-moment awareness, then it means we can arouse a little more energy. It's not to just stay in that cruise control mode. So this is the first advice. Of course the Buddha didn't talk about cruise control, but <laughs> he did talk about changing one's attitude towards this state, not believing the voices of Tina Mita. The second suggestion he had for Mogalana was to reflect on the Dharma, to use reflection as a way of bringing energy. And this can be done very skillfully. When you're feeling overpowered by drowsiness, by sluggishness, by laziness, by that low, low energy or congealed state, Using the thinking process itself can raise energy for us. Thinking does that. You know, just as a common example of how it does it, you know at those nights, maybe not here so much, but, but outside, those nights when, for whatever reason, the mind can't stop thinking about something, you don't go to sleep. Because that thinking process is the antithesis of the sleepy mind. It actually actually wakes the mind up. But we need to be cautious about this. We want to use the reflecting mind, the thinking mind in this situation, in a constructive way. We want to be using it for reflections about the Dharma, about liberation, about what we're doing here. It may be that reciting some of the chants, either out loud, you know, at the times with the whole group, or even inwardly, that can, that can help bring us out of the sleepiness. Reflecting about the nature of attachment and suffering and liberation. You need to be a little careful that you just don't use any kinds of thoughts to wake yourself up. Because you might well be replacing one hindrance with another. One, one yogi once came to me and said, oh yeah, when I sit and have a lot of lustful fantasies, I don't feel sleepy at all. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yes. oh, but I'm not sure the trade-off is uh, helpful. So if we're using this understanding of the mind, that a skillful use of the thought process can help bring us out of a very heavy state of sloth. There are a few other ways. You, know, you can sit with your eyes open. This can be a very helpful practice. You know, the eyes can either be downcast ahead, they can even be just really up and out and open. Don't be looking about. It's not a chance to check up You know, on all the other yogis in the room. <laughs> But we can can open our eyes and then turn inward. So it's letting, letting our gaze go out and our attention in. And that can be a very helpful way of coming out of a drowsy, sleepy state. Stand up. Take less food. The last thing the Buddha recommended, which sounds a little strange, but it might actually be helpful he said, to pull on one's earlobes. <laughs> well, everybody's sitting in the hall. Uh, it's what he told Mogalana. It's important to begin to explore all of these different ways of working with this state. The appearance, this arising appearance of Tinamira, of sloth and topor in the mind, It's a very strongly conditioned state. It comes again and again in different circumstances. When we get lost in it, we're imprisoned. If we can work with it, if we can stay aware of it, or actually change the change the quality of the energy, we stay free. So it's an important arena of investigation, of work. The second mind state, second appearance that has, that has tremendous power over us in very gross ways and extremely subtle ways doesn't have to do with too little energy, it has to do with too much energy when we're out of balance that way. and this appearing mind state comes as the trembling or flickering nature of the mind of restlessness agitation worry in pali the word in pali is udachha and it literally means shaking above and it's so interestingly the, the pali words often often describe so exactly the mind state The mind state of restlessness is a shaking of the mind, shaking or trembling above the appearance, above the object. It's not settled into it, it's not resting in it. Even in English, the word is very interesting restlessness. You know, a state without rest. And this is how this udacha functions there's no rest, no tranquility. Restlessness has a scattering aspect in our minds, and the examples which show us or reveal to us the actual experience we're having, some of the examples that are used are like a beehive. You know, if if something strikes the beehive and the, the bees all start swarming, and they're swarming around the hive. So restlessness stays around the object. It's not... Going completely off, staying around the object, but not not landing on it, not resting on it. Another example is like if there's a pile of ash and somebody drops a stone into the ash, and the ash goes you know, and the the ash all rises and lands in the vicinity. So it's still staying around it, but it's been disturbed. It's been scattered. Because of this restlessness in the mind, this scattering energy, it has a very uh, specific kind of result for us. And that is, it produces, or supports, or creates, generates a lot of the kinds of thoughts we have. It's because of restlessness in the mind, this scattering in the mind, how we get lost in thought so often. And there are particular kinds of thoughts that restlessness generates. they are often thoughts of self-judgment or guilt or worry about things that we've done in the past that have been unskillful. No, it's restlessness in the mind which creates these kinds of thoughts over and over again, which, which keeps us getting lost in these kinds of thoughts. Thinking about the things that we've done that have been unskillful, or thinking about things that we should have done that we didn't. We really missed opportunities. And what's so amazing about this process, we become so intimate with our own minds with our own experience and as you're sitting here in silence now for a couple of weeks and as it goes as it goes on there's such a profound level of intimacy with what's arising that as these thoughts come you know of self-judgment or of guilt or of worry they're very impactful we feel them very deeply because of that, it's very easy to get lost in them and to lose the sense that they also are just an appearance arising out of this energy of restlessness. Another kind of thought that's generated by restlessness is compulsive planning. and Probably some of you are familiar with that. The <laughs> It's just the mind which generates plan after plan after plan after plan. If this is happening, something that might be helpful to do, instead of noting it as planning, you might note it as restlessness, because that is a way of acknowledging not the symptom but the underlying energy. It might help you open up to the energetic state of what's present out of which the planning mind is coming. So it gets more to the source of it. The third kinds of thoughts generated by this scattering of mind is something that is essential to understand, especially on a long retreat. And this is something which we in the trade call yogi mind. Yogi mind takes different forms. One form it takes is getting consumed by comparisons with other yogis. And what's so interesting to watch is that when we're on retreat, we will compare anything. <laughs> we notice who's sitting longer than we are, and who moves more, more often. You know, and we get, we get caught in whole stories. You know. They're better yogis, they're worse yogis. We compare how fast somebody is going, how slow somebody is going relative to ourselves we compare how many cushions they're sitting on. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow, if you don't need a cushion, it probably means you're fully enlightened. (laughs) And and I've seen my own mind go through so many of these trips. I don't know how it is this year, but in past years, on the interview lists, before each name, there was like some numbers and a letter. And yogis started generating whole stories about what that means. Oh, yeah, the, the good yogis have these numbers and letters, and there's other yogis, and it's all just the computer printout, you know, organizing the, the interview groups. But the mind spins out. The mind just spins out in this comparing mind with such intensity. that where we really get caught by this, you need to see, you need to recognize this, and the quicker you can recognize it happening, the happier you'll be. It's just the yogi mind. You, know, you can use that label. Another way yogi mind manifests, and again, all of this is coming out of restlessness. It's coming out of a scattered energy. Another way yogi mind manifests is that small incidents... Take on huge proportions for us. Now, somebody walks in front of you, and maybe you spend three days in paranoid thoughts, or full of rage, or whatever. There was a time in Burma at the monastery. It's, it's very hot there. I mean, it's <laughs> conditions for practice there are really difficult. You know, it's hot and humid and. And in one of the meditation halls, there were fans. People got actually into fist fight over whether the fans should be on or off. It was amazing. It was just amazing to see. I mean, these are people (laughs) practicing the Dharma of liberation, (laughs) of loving kindness, of compassion. (laughs) But yogi mind, when yogi mind takes over... You know, you put the switch on and the fans are on and then somebody comes in and pushes <laughs> turns the fans off. I and mean, you can see how wars start. We've had different wars here, <laughs> right at IMS. You know, the window wars. <laughs> it's and sometimes the mind starts doing very strange things. I was doing a retreat here. This is quite a few years ago. I was up in one oh one, the room Steve Armstrong was in doing a self-retreat, and I started hearing voices coming through the pipes, the heating pipes. And I was hearing whole conversations, which I thought were originating in the kitchen. And I don't know what my mind was thinking, but I was convinced that people were in the kitchen and the conversation was carrying through the pipes... And these conversations were so strange. That <laughs> they were talking about friends of mine and the wife having killed the husband, and, <laughs> they had, and nobody wanted to tell me anything because I was on retreat. And for days, I, for days, my mind is going over this and over this, and I keep hearing these voices through the pipes. I had to go and check. I, I had to go out and really ask people what's going on here? <laughs> Why aren't you telling me? <coughs> One very helpful thing to do in recognition of the prevalence of yogi mind, of how either things are just fabricated, completely fabricated, or how little incidents get blown way out of proportion. If you find this happening you know, in your mind, in your practice, and you're having some major cataclysmic explosion over something somebody has done, Please check it out with one of the teachers. Get a reality check on what's happening. Don't start leaving notes and, you know, engaging because more often than not, it's yogi mind at work. So it's just good, it's good to check in, you know, and see. If we're committed to awakening, if we're committed to freeing the mind, we need to see very clearly all the ways these different mind states work. When Upandita first started talking about sloth and torpor and restlessness, this was well into my practice, and I wasn't feeling very sleepy. During those during that time, and my mind didn't feel particularly restless. It was seemed quite concentrated. When he first started talking, I thought, I don't really have these. No, it's not really happening in my mind. But then, as he started explaining all all the ways, all the ramifications of these states, I thought, my mind is nothing but sloth and torpor (laughs) and restlessness. It's like seeing every time sort of we pull back from a difficulty. That's the working of sloth and torpor. So it's not only you know, very noticeable sleepiness or drowsiness or dullness. It's that withdrawing, retreating energy. Or every time the mind slips unnoticed into another thought. That's the working of utacca. That's the working of restlessness. How many times does that happen in an hour? Countless times. So it just gives us a greater appreciation, a greater sense of what our practice is about it. For myself, I found it inspiring. I didn't find it discouraging. I was happy to get a clearer picture of what actually is going on. Because it's only if we have a clear picture of it, then we can begin to engage. Then we can begin to work with it. There's one um, common assumption that we have which fuels the energy of restlessness. And so I think it's helpful to just understand a little bit about why this energy of restlessness, this scattering, scattering force is so strong in us. It's particularly strong in people with a predilection for thinking about things, which is most of us. You know, it's it's very conditioned in our Western culture, and I think it comes from a very deeply ingrained sense, and it's a taught sense that thinking leads to understanding. And in many arenas, it does. There are many, many situations where thinking does lead to an understanding. But it doesn't lead to meditative wisdom. Wisdom is beyond the domain of thinking. But because we've been so habituated to believe that it's through thinking that we will understand things, that all of these thoughts coming from restlessness, they have so much power. They seduce us again and again because we somehow believe, yeah, they're going to be onward leading in some way. Let me just think about this, you know, and I'll figure something out. Awakening can happen in the presence of thought, but it does not happen through thought. And this is a very critical difference. So our goal is not to get rid of thoughts. Our goal is not to be lost in them, not to get identified with them, not to contract into them, but rather to stabilize this very open awareness in which thought itself is just another passing appearance. When we relate in that way, when we understand that freedom does not come through thinking about things, and when we really understand this, it will begin to weaken the pull, weaken the, the power of this restless energy in the mind. We won't be fooled by it. I remember one one time I was on retreat and I was just going through a flurry of thought. You know, just over and over again. And at a certain point I, I sort of got to was kind of impatient, but it felt like felt like a wise impatience. Uh, and I, I remember just saying to myself, Do you want to think or do you want to be free? And it just kind of, you know, sort of woke me up again. So disentangled from the endlessness of getting lost in thought, believing that it's going to lead someplace. In just the same way that we can be aware of sloth and torpor, in the lucid mirror of the mind, the lucid clarity of mind, we can also be aware of restlessness itself. The appearance of restlessness is what is known. Do you see the possibility of that? So we don't make it a struggle, we don't get into conflict with it, When this restless energy is appearing, and it can happen in many ways. It can be as a flurry of thought. It can be a bodily restlessness. You know, Sometimes it's just sitting and it just feels like it's impossible to sit for another moment. It's that kind of agitated energy. Can we make our mind spacious enough, wide enough, open enough, to see that very energy of restlessness itself as another appearance? just recognizing it, opening to it. One way of doing that is either by feeling the whole body, so rather than focusing on something smaller, or even going to sounds, just sitting, listening to sounds, so the mind gets very boundless, without boundary, and the sounds are appearing, and then the sensations appearing, and then the restlessness is appearing as just one more phenomenon. a little strange, each year there seems to be more and more to say about each of these. When I first started giving these talks, all five hindrances were in one talk. <laughs> and then, three hindrances got into one talk. And it's Two of them. <laughs> because each one can just be explored so fully, and the more we understand it, the more interest there is. You know, how is this working? Sort of the last point I want to make to reinforce a basic understanding that all of these mental appearances of sloth and torpor, of restlessness, and, and all the others, you know, desire and anger and doubt and happiness and everything, they all come as visitors to the mind. They're not inherent to the mind. The mind's nature is simply to know. The mind is pure in that sense, just like it knows a sound. Knows a sensation. It knows these different mental states. So they're coming as visitors. We don't have to invite them in. You know, we, if if we're attentive, if we're aware, if we're simply present for their arising, we see them. We recognize them for what they are: a visiting appearance. Then there's no struggle. There's no problem. We don't get lost. I'd like to close with something the Buddha said to one of his disciples, whose name was Soma, who had formerly been a musician, a famous lute player. And uh, there's one famous sutta of the Buddha's talking to Soma where he describes where he talks about the balance of energy and relaxation and how we, we need to have a union of both. But in this particular, these particular words to Soma, I, he said, the gift of truth is the highest gift. And the taste of truth is the sweetest taste. And the joy of truth is the greatest joy. And this is really what we're doing here. The gift of truth is the highest gift, and the taste of truth is the sweetest taste. And the joy of truth is the greatest joy. Every moment, this is available. Let's sit for a few minutes. Full body. Just feeling the body. See what sensations are appearing. The sensation of the breath appearing, the sound of my voice appears. Maybe a thought or an image appears and disappears. Notice when the mind gets pulled into an appearance or reacts to it, and again settle back into the open, effortless awareness.